I'm Khalil Ekolona, and this is Nashville. The next time you're in downtown Nashville, stop by the intersection of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard and 4th Avenue North. There's a historical marker there. It notes that this area from 4th Ave to Public Square once served as the center of the slave trade here in Nashville. And buying and selling of enslaved people was a large part to the city's economic development. It helped very prominent families build generational wealth. Later this hour, we'll explore more about this part of our city's history. But first, it's a significant day for historic preservation in Nashville. That's because the so-called Nashville 9 was published this morning. The Nashville 9 is the list of historic properties that are considered endangered, either because of disrepair or the possibility that they'd be demolished or impacted by development. The local nonprofit Historic Nashville Incorporated publishes this list every year. And today we've got Brian Mansfield, the president of Historic Nashville, with us and WPLN special projects editor, Tony Gonzalez. Brian and Tony, welcome to This is Nashville. Hey, Cleo. So good to have you guys. Thank you very much. Good to have you guys with us. So, Brian, your group, Historic Nashville, is always working on preservation. But this annual list is probably its biggest splash that you make each year. What's the goal for putting this out there? The main goal is to raise awareness for properties that people may not realize are at risk. There may be places they drive by every day and see, and because there's not a for sale sign or because there's not a fence around them already, they don't realize the stories that are going on that put these places at risk. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Tony, you've been a reporter covering these lists over the past decade. Before we get to the newest list of places. What can you say about some of the past Nashville 9 announcements and whether the preservation efforts worked out? Yeah, yeah. So I always take interest in this list. Uh, it always kind of points me to some new local history that maybe I wasn't aware of. I also just sometimes take a little drive to kind of go see these places. Uh, so in the past, there have been some preservation successes uh, connected to the Nashville 9. Now, it's not, it's rare that it's just getting on the Nashville 9 that that saves a place. I mm -hmm. mean, it's it usually, uh, it's just one part of preservation. But yeah, I mean, the Ryman Auditorium, RCA Studio A on Music Row, those places were both preserved after, you know, preservationists kind of uh, brought a lot of attention to it. Also Fort Nashboro, which is this uh, interpretive site down by the river. So some of those places were on the Nashville 9 and then were preserved. Uh, there, there are other places, though, that uh, were on the list and then they went away or they had to change. Uh, Bobby's Idol Hour. Uh, this was uh, a, a bar on Music Row. It ended up moving. So it does still exist, okay. uh, but it was sort of forced to move. Uh, the other one that I think about a lot that I had covered was the Colonel Tom Parker House. Uh, he was the manager of Elvis, uh, and he was based in Madison. It was right on Gallatin, uh, Gallatin Pike. That home was this kind of unusual stone structure. There was a lot of history there. It eventually got torn down and ended up becoming a car wash. A car wash. So not a great preservation story for that one. Okay. Wow. Um, man, that would have been cool to see that. You really can go cool get your house. car wash there now. I heard he was an eccentric guy. I wonder what his house looked like. Now, Brian, can you talk about how these endangered places are chosen to be on this list? Sure. We we look at, at a variety of 
at risk situations. In some cases, it may be uh, well, a couple of years ago, you had the tornado come through. And so we had a couple of places that were damaged because of the tornado. And all they really needed was enough money for the property owners to do the necessary repairs. Other times, it's places that we know are in imminent danger of demolition, such as the Firestone building uh, at where Elliston Place splits off from West End. That was one that was on a year or two ago, and we knew that one was pretty much gone. And so it was just kind of a way to let everybody know it's time to say your goodbyes. Mm. Other times it's, you know, new developers are taking over or a place is on the market. And, you know, we, we would, for instance, love to see a buyer come in and take care of this place, preserve its historic nature, but also find a creative new use for the property. Now, I want to get into some details here. Brian, are there places at risk on this year's Nashville 9 that are meaningful to you? Um, I think probably the two that are most meaningful to me are the two related to the music business, because that's that's where I come from. And so you have Barbara Mandrell's former home, Fontenelle, um, out in the White's Creek area, and that got bought in 2019, right before everything shut down and has basically sat empty and uncared for for about three years. Um, It was supposed to go on the market at auction last month. I'm not sure what the result of that is. So that's a property in transition. And it's a beautiful, beautiful building that has had use both as a private home and in public settings. And then also you have Spence Manor, which is kind of a landmark on Music Row, uh, was originally a high-end hotel designed for people that were coming into town to do business there. Um, Also was a place that Elvis Presley stayed uh, when he would record nearby. And there is some wrangling between the owners, some of whom are uh, interested in short-term rentals there, some of whom live there, some of whom would like to tear it down and see a new, bigger structure there that maybe could take advantage of the, the property prices in those in that section of town. Mm-hmm. Tony, what about you? What stands out? Uh, the place on the list uh, that I took note of was uh, the Fisk Little Theater at Fisk University. Um, we actually had a reporter cover uh, the Little Theater Last year, there was this uh, really interesting art installation project that was happening uh, at that theater building. Uh, It's a little hard to describe, but they actually covered the draped the entire building in these uh, burlap sacks. It was this really interesting project. So, so that was sort of the first time I'd heard about the little theater and its history. Um, You know, it dates all the way back to the Civil War. Mm. Uh, So, uh, and it's this wooden structure. So, I mean, over the time, there's been a lot of uh, wear and tear. Uh, it is, uh, you know, Brian mentioned earlier, like you can kind of drive past these places. I mean, it, it is a pretty unassuming building, especially if you're kind of looking up at the towers of Fisk or something like that. So you could easily overlook uh, the Fisk Little Theater. So I think that's pretty interesting on the list. Uh, there are a few other um, uh, sites on the National Nine this year that are really important from local black history. Uh, so there's the civil rights, uh, there's the home of Robert Lillard. He was a civil rights attorney, a uh, longtime city council member. There's also the Scotts Chapel AME Church, which is in Hermitage, uh, that uh, served a community of uh, formerly enslaved uh, people in the Hermitage area. There's also um, a school building in North Nashville. Uh, It was uh, a school for for black students in the 1940s to the 1960s. So I think you take all of those together. I mean, that's uh, a lot of really rich history. So I took note that uh, the Nashville 9 has has a lot of um, 
you know, sort of that uh, section of local history on the list this time. Are there any on the list that you think could be in the news anytime soon? Uh, yes, probably. Uh, you know, Brian had mentioned uh, Fontenelle and the the idea of of that property being auctioned off. Um, I I also don't know what happened with that auction. I don't know the current condition. Um, but you know that uh, that property has the mansion. There was the amphitheater. I think there was a distillery there. Uh, it's a lot of acres, and a lot of people um, have really been curious, like, what's the future of Fontenelle? Uh, there have been some ideas in the last few years for what should happen there or, or how it might change. There's always a lot of interest, a little bit of controversy anytime we're talking about the future of, of the Fontenelle. Hmm. So I could see that one being in the news. Uh, the other one that, that has been making news lately is the, I'm going to try to say it my best, Ren Raw House uh, from the Warner family. This is in East Nashville. It's where the Lincoln Tech uh, Mechanics College uh, mm -hmm. is right now along Gallatin. So that property is being redeveloped. Um, so there's going to have to be uh, some kind of plan to to incorporate uh, that that historic home. It was built in uh, the mid 1800s. Wow. Um, so I think some of these structures, uh, some of these places, will definitely be in the news. Now, Brian, what can you say about your expectations for all these endangered places? Like, getting listed isn't enough to save a place. So what's next? Um, well, it's a variety of things. In some cases, it's trying to find partners to work with the owners to preserve the places. The little theater that Tony mentioned, for example, Fisk has uh, an incredibly rich architectural history on that campus. Um, they don't always have the budget to uh, keep those build those older buildings up as much as they would like to. And so they've been very open to working with preservationists over the years. I would love to see somebody take that project under their wing and work with them. Um, in other cases, it may be uh, finding a buyer that wants to preserve the property rather than to tear it down. Um, and then in some cases, it's a matter of just putting pressure from uh, from the neighborhoods, the neighborhoods putting pressure on the developers coming into the area by doing things like attending zoning appeals board meetings, um, because you know the developers are going to attend those meetings. The people in the neighborhood that care about the properties don't always, and it's they tend to go with whoever shows up because that's what shows that they care. Brian Mansfield is president of the nonprofit Historic Nashville Incorporated, which just put out its Nashville 9 list of endangered historic properties. You can find that list on today's episode post at thisisnashville.org. And Tony Gonzalez is WPLN special projects editor. Thanks to you both for being here. Yeah, thanks, Cleo. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn more about our city's role in the buying and selling of enslaved people. Join the conversation and tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. A few times a month, we're going to take you out into the city with us to show you an ordinary street corner, a vacant grocery store, a brand new CVS. Now, I know what you're thinking. That does not sound very exciting. Our goal is to take you back in time, to bring our history to life, to show you what our city and region has been. Today, we're dropping a pin on an island in the Cumberland, Cumberland River. 
Hills Island is up near Old Hickory. It's a long stretch of island, not too far from the shores on either side. Now, we really don't know much about this island at all. The, the land was gifted to Cumberland River Compact last year, and since then, the group has partnered with Dr. LaRotha Williams to uncover more of its history, and a role that Williams describes as Nashville's first and most lucrative big business, the buying and selling of black men, women, and children. Last month, our executive producer, Andrea Tudhope, embarked on a pontoon, pontoon saloon boat for an archeological expedition to the island with local historians, archeologists, and the folks from the Cumberland River Compact. We kick off at the East Bank Landing Dock. This is no ordinary ride for this pontoon, which normally hosts parties up and down the Cumberland. Are we going to be your most sober um, <laughs> guest on this we've, boat? We've, we've done it all. But today's ride is quiet, contemplative. In about an hour and a half, we spot the island in the distance. Yeah, this is Hills Island right here. That's Catherine Price with the Cumberland River Compact. The island seems small at first glance, but it stretches nearly 20 acres. We idle quietly along the west side of the island to find a good place to dock. It's shallow here, only about seven feet deep, and there's just about 30 feet separating the island from the mainland. After the compact was gifted the land, they started to reimagine how it might be used. You know, we wanted to make sure that we didn't just focus on sort of the ecological role of this island, um, but also really understanding kind of the culture and history of, of this island. And that history is complicated and nearly as uncharted as the island itself. But what we do know is that this island played an important role in a grave reputation that modern Nashville came to hold. It's history that TSU professor Dr. LaRotha Williams is determined to better understand, starting with how it came to be named after a man named Harry Hill. Truth be told, I still don't know, but Hill was one of the wealthiest businessmen in this city and later on in New Orleans. And when I say business, always bear in mind, slavery was Nashville's first big business. Early Davidson County tax records show that Hill was one of Nashville's largest property owners. And at the time of his death in 1853, he enslaved more than 1,000 African-American men and women. But Hill didn't own the island. John Donaldson did. Donaldson, of course, staked a claim and settled what became modern Nashville, displacing countless Native Americans who had long called this place and presumably this island home. Donaldson's Nashville, our Nashville, was built on the backs of enslaved people. Nashville was a, a place that became known initially because of its position as the second largest slave port in the state. But a lot of the slave people came through here trying to get free. This island very well could have been a space where they hit out on their way to Kentucky or Illinois. I wish that we had a better record of what the space would have been like. As it is, really the only written record we do have of this island is the diary of Emily Donaldson, John Donaldson's granddaughter. 
So there's a lot still to uncover. What Dr. Williams is most interested in is what life was truly like for the people these men bought, sold, and forced into labor. There's one man in particular who's caught his attention. His name was George. Like most of the African-Americans who were enslaved, what we know about him usually comes from observations of the enslavers. And what we know about George comes from Emily Donaldson's diary. A lot of the language she used to describe him we should take with a grain of salt. We know he had a family, but it seems they stayed on the Donaldson plantation just across the river on the mainland, while George spent summers on Hills Island. They talk about him coming back to the plantation after the summer ends, and he's having skins and nuts and things that he's collected from out here. Emily wrote that George had shaved teeth. Now, body modification was common where he was likely from in West Africa, but Dr. Williams says this very well could have been to keep his enslavers in fear, a form of psychological resistance. You can't physically do anything to better your situation, but you can use your mind maybe to pull one over on your enslavers to make, make your life a little bit better. Whether George was banished to the island or not, we don't know. But either way, Dr. Williams imagines living on Hills Island gave George a fair amount of autonomy. And now you think about it, when you read that diary, it talks about him walking around, singing songs, maybe or speaking a foreign language. Being out here might have very well insulated him from the pressures of, of, of conforming to what Donaldson and others would have wanted him to become. The island today is untouched. The only trails we find are game trails. We walk south, then make our way to the other side. It's really not too far across, but far enough that it's easy to imagine George living a quiet life here. When we reach the east shore, Dr. Williams stops to look around. As I was walking on this island, I was trying to figure out, well, what would I do if I was here? I like to fish, but ultimately you reach a point where you just get tired of fishing. So maybe building something or engaging in some sort of art. Hasn't been lost on me that I've probably one of the few black men that have actually been to this island over the last 100 in 50 some odd years. My part in this narrative is to try to learn more about them, to maybe reveal a little bit more about Nashville's black past, and by extension, the city's history as well, because you can't separate their presence here from slavery in this city, from the development of Nashville during the territorial period. And I don't know how this thing is going to turn out. I don't know what this place is going to become, but I'm grateful that, at least in this telling of the story, African-American presence won't be left out of it like it has been in the past.
My next guest can give us a greater understanding of that past and how the sale of enslaved people supported our city's economic growth. Dr. Carol Busey is a David is the Davidson County's official historian, and she joins me now. Dr. Busey, thank you so much for being here. Welcome back to it's This a Is Nashville. To be here. So, you know, I'd like to start by you know having you provide us some context for the trade of enslaved people here in Nashville. As we just heard, Dr. Williams said that this was Nashville's first big business. How big was it? It it had two points where it really began to boom. One was when Tennessee became a state, and then afterwards it really took off when the War of 1812 ended and our own Andrew Jackson became the hero of it. But what that war did was to really push out Indians, Native American tribes, who were on land ideal for raising cotton. The Mm -hmm. cotton gin had been invented and patented, and suddenly people living in the East uh, who had been raising tobacco and indigo suddenly see cotton as white gold. Cotton was a labor-intensive crop. Now, enslaved people and a few free blacks were with the Donaldson and Robertson parties when they came in 1779 and 1780 and officially settled a place that became Nashboro and then North Carolina created Davidson County Mm. in the surrounding area. And that whole period of time between the arrival of the Donaldson Party, where there was a significant number of slaves, because Donaldson himself was probably wealthier than anybody else who had come, and he owned a significant number of slaves. But James Robertson had an enslaved man with him when he took the trek through the Cumberland Gap and down through Kentucky here. Charlotte Robertson had on the flatboats with the Donaldson party a female slave named Hagar. The Donaldsons had a a, a enslaved woman who did the cooking for them. Mm. But as long as this area was being contested by Native American tribes who saw the settlement here of white people with domesticated animals and enslaved people, they saw this as their last opportunity to push these people out. And so during that heavily contested time between 1780 and about 1794, you see lots and lots of of gray areas between what a slave could do And what, because everyone was fighting for survival. And so enslaved people were often armed uh, in in many cases during those Indian attacks with the Chickamaugans and other tribes coming in and trying to push these settlers out of this Cumberland Basin. Uh, Anthony Bledsoe owned a a male slave named, and his male slave, uh, uh, Abraham, actually took credit, and and Bledsoe gave him credit himself for killing a a very important Chickamaugan Cherokee named Mad Dog. And so the lines between what slaves could do and, and the other people, the free blacks or the others, was quite gray. Hmm. And yet the all of the dirtiest, nastiest work was always 
assigned to the enslaved people. Now, sure enough, when Tennessee became a state, the population of Nashville grew. And here comes the cotton gin. And here we're going to see dramatic changes. And it does immediately become a big business. Historian Anita Goodstein did a study of the deeds and saw how many enslaved people the deed transfers took place during those early years. Mm. Now, Okay, so it, it grew to this big business with the inception and the contributions of the cotton gin coming here. How many people, how many households had an enslaved person living there? Well, according to Dr. Goodstein's uh, examination of the records, two-thirds of the population owned enslaved people and had them there. However, of those two-thirds, the majority of them only owned one. Now, here's a kind of an interesting thing that takes place in Nashville history. Uh, in 1824, five, along in those years, uh, the people of Nashville decided after the War of 1812 that we needed a proper university, and they recruited Dr. Philip Lindsley from New, Zer- uh, from New Jersey to come here and open the U- University of Nashville. We had had fits and starts over several years, and he came in, and one of the first things he did was to found the American Colonization Chapter here in Nashville. It was a society, a national movement, that was, the idea was we will take enslaved people and transfer them back to Africa, creating a colony for them Hmm. called Liberia, Liberty. This was during James Monroe's presidency, and the capital of Liberia is Monrovia. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, the big hitch with that one scheme was who's going to pay for the transportation. And then the secondary one, which no one ever considered, was what if the black People here who are enslaved, generation after generation, they don't want to go back to Africa. They want to be free, certainly, Mm -hmm. but they don't want to go to Africa to be free. And so here's an interesting thing that we have just recently learned about Philip Lindsley. He clearly did not really support slavery, but we found in the city cemetery records where his family had a significantly large plot and buried on that plot was one female house slave. Now, all of the Lindsley's bodies were taken to Mount Olivet after the Civil War when Mount Olivet became the newer, more fashionable place to be buried. Hmm. But that one slave, Hannah, was left at the city cemetery. And so now that raises, for every answer you get to a question, it creates some more questions. That's pretty, really interesting. But, you know, how important was the slave trade to economic growth of the city prior to the Civil War? It was very important. We had some very, very large operators who came in and out of here, one of which, probably one of the very largest, was Isaac Franklin, who had, he his, his family had moved to Sumner County, and he bought enslaved workers in Virginia and the Carolinas and Maryland, where there was a surplus, 
and then he transferred them here and then on to Natchez and New Orleans where they could be sold for for plantation uh, labor. Mm. And that's when the market really took off. We had a big slave market down at four, what is now 4th and Charlotte. Dr. Williams and I were there when the, the marker was unveiled. It was a very moving ceremony. And up on College Hill by the college, there were slave pens. Now, we can't imagine people being treated like cattle, but indeed they were. And yet Nashville, uh, who had a conscience, conscience, Nashvilleans who had consciences, they just closed their eyes to that and said, that's just the way it is. I want to ask you a little about that a little bit later. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're talking this hour about Nashville's role in the buying and selling of enslaved people. Tweet us your questions at This Is Nashville. I'd like to introduce my next guest. Dr. LaRotha Williams is a professor of African-American and public history at TSU. And as we just heard, he's researching the history of Hills Island on the Cumberland River. Dr. Williams, welcome back to This Is Nashville. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. You've been researching this for a long time. How did you come to realize that this was big business in Nashville? Well, I um, first I knew from grad school that, um, you know, by the 1840s, roughly about half of all of U.S. exports was cotton. Cotton cotton represented almost half of U.S. exports. Mm. So therefore, the people that um, picked that cotton were very valuable. So you start thinking, well, how valuable were these folks? So you go to the tax records and you look at the amount of land that a person might own. And in the case of John Donaldson with my work on Hills Island, I saw that he had, you know, almost 1,000 acres of land around here. Then he had about 40 enslaved people. Um, the value of those people were only $500 less than all that land mm. they owned. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the first things that set it off. Okay, well, Nashville is pretty important in terms of the trade. But then also there are a bunch of things that went on that made this place significant, I think. And Dr. Busey alluded to um, a couple of these, the cotton gin, the founding of Nashville. But then right during that window between 1791, about 1804, you have a revolution that occurs in Haiti. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that Haitian Revolution, we get the um, Louisiana Territory, right? So in essence, what that does, it, it, it creates almost an unholy trinity of sorts that, that creates an empire for slavery. So you got all this new land becoming available. Um, you got to get them down there somewhere. Well, the rivers are our most reliable form of transportation at the time. It wasn't, we didn't have... I-40 or I-65 or anything like that, you had the rivers. The cities of Memphis and Nashville both lie on rivers and provide very dependable forms of transportation to the south. So you, 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 you have all of that. So the transportation, there's a lot of money to be made. They're just getting them from mm. North Carolina, Virginia, to Middle Tennessee, and then ultimately to New Orleans or Natchez. 
So it's just this economic boon had really transferred or, or bled out to many mm-hmm. other forms of industry. Exactly. And then um, even when we take a look at the businesses that flourished along the public square and, and, and um, along what was then Cedar Street, but now it's Martin Luther King, um, you have slave brokers constantly popping up on that little strip from like 4th Avenue North to the public square. Mm-hmm. And then you have auctions that typically occurred on Saturdays at the courthouse, on the steps of the courthouse, northeast corner of the public square. Um, you have a bank, and you can go to the newspaper, and it's very clear on this. They, they're offering some very, very favorable terms on loans to buy enslaved people. And then right next to the bank, you have um, Aetna Insurance Company. And Aetna's mm-hmm. still around today because they used to make sure my teeth stayed looking good, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but they offered insurance policies on enslaved people uh, who were engaged in hazardous jobs. How, how do we see the legacy of this in our city today? <laughs> I may step on some toes here because I, I have friends at these institutions. But every time I ride by Belmont, I think of money that was earned during the slave trade. Um, when I think about the public square and its evolution and how we identify it as, 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 um, a public space, how we look at the memory of this space. I always think about just how important a place that was, but how, and we can, this might be an exercise for me and my students to engage in. So um, Jasmine, if you're listening, this might be your next project. Mm-hmm. Um, let's look at those businesses that were set up, those hardware stores and what they were selling and whether or not they could be something that would be used in the business of slavery. When we talk, you know, when you talk about business, vertical integration, um, the the public square is a, a case study in that when it comes to slavery. Now, Dr. Beasley, we have just about a minute for this segment, but what about the families that own plantations outside of Tennessee but still profit on what was going on here? There were many families in Nashville, the wealthier, most elite families often owned what are now called absentee landlord or work camp plantations. And that was the terror of all slave parents, that their sons would be sent to one of these work camp plantations. The Grundys and McGavocks owned plantations across the Mississippi River in Arkansas. James K. Polk and his widow, Sarah Childress Polk, owned a plantation down in Mississippi. There were all manner of people who invested in property, and many of those enslaved workers on those plantations, when there was no family of the owners present, were treated horribly and literally worked to death. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about Nashville's role in the trade of enslaved African-Americans and turn to their lives. What do we know about the people who were enslaved here and how they lived? 
Join the conversation. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking this hour about our city's role in the buying and selling of enslaved people and how this global history created an economic boon for Nashville while enriching some of its most prominent families. Now we want to hear about the lives of the people who were enslaved. What was the human scale and impact of this time in our history? My guests today are Davidson County historian Dr. Carol Busey and Dr. LaRotha Williams, professor of African-American and public history at TSU. Now, Dr. Williams, as we mentioned before the break, you helped get the historical marker up to show where enslaved people were bought and sold in our city. And I understand your students played a big role in that. And one in particular felt pretty strongly about acknowledging this part of our history. Can you briefly tell me about that? Um, yes. We, um, I was teaching a, a course called um, Black Nashville and History and Public Memory. And so we um, began talking about Nashville's role in the slave trade. And then um, we, on this particular exercise, we were, we were reading slave advertisements. And this is a pretty powerful exercise because um, what we did in this, you know, there are there are advertisements that talk about people being bought and sold, but it began to ask questions about, you know, um, or how old was this child that was being sold that day? And there was one in particular that was seven years old when they were bought and sold. Mm. So seven years old, today that would put them in, what, maybe first or second grade? Yeah, yeah. And you think about the kind of conversations our parents or our grandparents have with us before they send us to school when we're seven years old. So I asked, what kind of conversation do you think this child's parents or caretakers had with him to prepare them for this moment? We read them to see what kind of physical descriptions they had. So you had some that may have had scars, walked with a limp, had a hump in their back, missing an eye or missing teeth. And I asked them to consider what that revealed about the experience. And more often than not, it revealed that they came out of very out of a very violent experience. Mm-hmm. So as we went through these, one of my students um, I think she was from East Nashville. Um, she was very upset. She says, Dr. Williams, I've been living here my whole life, and I've never heard these stories. How come we don't have a marker or anything to that commemorates this? And I was like, I really don't know. But then she challenged me. She says, well, you know those folks that make those decisions, so why don't you do something? Mm-hmm. So I crafted a proposal, um, was able to secure the funding for it, and we had the ceremony to unveil the, the, the marker. And it was, it was important because we 
reclaim that space. And when I, I can remember one of the most moving parts of the ceremony, I had this um, young Yoruba woman um, do a libation ceremony where we poured out water and we called out the, these folks' names. So with that, that project was very important to me because it originated at TSU in my classroom. So I feel like I inspired my students to say something to me to get the ball rolling on this. I understand there's another story about a woman who lived on Jefferson Street who remembered being sold. What did she tell you? Um, it's an interesting story because she talked about the slave market being at the corner of Fourth and 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 Cedar Street. She and she called it the slave yard. And you know that was important because it's a part of oral history that we could use to supplement what we had documented in the historical record. But she talked about being compelled to um, take off all of her clothes and rolling down the hill to demonstrate that you didn't have any broken bones or that there was nothing wrong with you. And I can remember when we went through this, one of the students was like, well, where is the hill, Dr. Williams? So we had a few debates over where that hill could possibly be. What'd you all land on? This is one of those mysteries that's probably going to remain a mystery. But okay. that's just my idea is that that, that spot right where the um, Bicentennial Park is, if you look up the hill going up to the Capitol, where the, the stairs go up, that's like the biggest hill there. So maybe that's it. I, but that's the gospel according to Williams. So I don't know. Um, but um, what that moment demonstrated, though, was... Um, just how degrading that whole process was. And it's done in a way because, you know, these these enslaved people are mostly working in agricultural parts of the county. Um, the slave market is downtown, so that's something that their loved ones, that their friends and families, they would not be there to witness mm -hmm. that moment. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, that's, that's one of the stories that we've called from the WPA narratives that interestingly, interestingly emerged off of Jefferson Street. Mm. These are these are human lives and have suffered great tragedy. It's it's really important that we know their stories. Now, you know, Dr. Busey, can you tell tell us more about the lives of the so-called fancy girls of the time? Well, the fancy girls were female enslaved people who were used basically as concubines. They were to provide sex for men, uh, white men, and uh, they, were, they were dressed accordingly. When they were sold, they were stripped off. And, and this was a very common practice here to sell these young women. Women were looked at in two ways. One would be to, to provide sex for white men and their sons, and the other would be for their potential to reproduce. And so black women were stripped, as Dr. Williams said, and, and their hips were looked at 
from the point of view of somebody who wanted to make sure that you would not have difficulty giving birth to children. And one thing about this whole notion of our manifest destiny and expanding further and further west was because we had to have markets for these continual reproduction cycles of more and more enslaved people. And so as the population of slaves grow, we have to continue finding markets. And that's what really created the crisis in the 1850s that led to the Civil War. Mm. Now, here is an interesting thing about Nashville. There was a, a small but significant population of free blacks here and people who were also referred to as quasi-slaves. That meant they were not free, but they could work outside of the owner's home and make money and split it. Well, here is a woman named Sally Thomas. She has three sons and her two older sons. She is terrified that they are about to be sold. And so she took her money, but she didn't have enough and borrowed borrowed some extra money to buy her first son out of slavery. And then her second son actually ran away rather than being sold. And her third son, she did the very same thing. She did not quite raise enough money before she died to buy herself out of slavery. Mm. Now, you know, Dr. Busey, what were the attitudes? I'm curious about this. What were the attitudes about slavery among Nashvillians at the time? Nashvillians saw it as the reality. They may have had some small misgivings, but they had to keep their bifocals on and see these people not as human beings, but as chattel animals rather than real humans. I can imagine the contradiction because Nashville is the buckle of the Bible Belt, and I can only imagine it was very strong. That buckle was pretty pretty sturdy during those times. How did they compel their religious and spiritual beliefs to putting blinders on to these horrific acts? Well, after Nat Turner's rebellion in Virginia, in which slaves actually killed some white people and their, their families, uh, the, the laws really tightened. And if you were a, a pastor of a church in any state where slavery was legal, you had better preach, you had better interpret those scriptures in the Bible pro-slavery interpretations, because if you preach that slavery was illegal or un in the eyes of God, you were not going to have a job for very long. And so Southern preachers all adapted their theology to being a very pro-slavery position and supported it. So you go to church and, and yes, some people took their enslaved workers with them to church, but they wanted them to hear this mis message of submission. Yeah, I can imagine not only with their job in, in danger, potentially maybe their physical bodies as well. Well, as, as our county historian, what do you think the city could do to better acknowledge this aspect of our history? Well, I think the story needs to be told with historic markers at every single opportunity we have to put up a historic marker. We also need to really work to make sure all our school curriculum is inclusive. And people, there is a, a movement afloat to take slavery out of school curriculums on the grounds that it makes the 
African-American students feel badly. They know about slavery, and that's what they want to learn. So it's got to be told. Even white children know about slavery. But sanitizing our history is not going to solve any of our race relations problems today. You know, the story we heard about Hills Island makes it pretty clear that there are more questions than answers at this point. But Dr. Lee, as you as you dig into this history, what do you think? Do you think it has the potential to fundamentally change what we know about early history of modern Nashville? And, you know, how can this prepare the city to come to grips with itself, with its own self-described narrative? I, um, you know, we don't allow people that have amnesia just to walk the streets, right? If mm-hmm. you encounter a person that cannot tell you their name, that cannot tell you, you know, where they're from, you know, they have no memory of anything. We treat those people as being sick, as something, as someone that needs help. Um, this city, this state, this country has been suffering from amnesia when it comes to African-American history. Some of this amnesia has been selective, but then some of it has been imposed. Mm. The only way that we can get better, get healthy and mentally and spiritually, if I may, is we confront the past. Because there are some stories that need to be told that could radically change our educational system. I was talking to Dr. Busey earlier about, uh, you know, somebody that I'm really fond of in this city, Nettie Napier. Um, Everybody needs to know about her before they set foot in my class at TSU or read the marker. Mm -hmm. Um, So we need to to do better about the past. Dr. Lerbotha Williams is a professor of African-American and public history at TSU. He was joined by Davidson County historian, Dr. Carol Busey. I want to thank you both for being with us. Thank you for sharing this history with us. And please, will you agree to come on the show so we can do this again? Certainly. Certainly. Perfect. Perfect. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, inflation and the supply chain have driven up the cost of food. We'll look at how these higher costs are affecting Middle Tennesseans. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tutho. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover, the masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Catherine Price. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekolona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.